Hello, and welcome to the Green Leads Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo, and I'm really, really excited about the guest we have today because it's a super interesting topic that I think a lot of athletes want to know more about, but are not even sure where to get this information. My guest is Wendy Sterling, and she is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian, but also a sports dietitian. So she's consulted with the Oakland Athletics, the Golden State Warriors, the Jets, the Islanders. She's the co-author of How to Nourish Your Child Through an Eating Disorder, uh, a bunch of other books, actually, which I will link to in the description below. She has a private practice and sees people virtually throughout the country, and we are going to talk about the prevalence of eating disorders in athletes. So thanks so much for being here, Wendy. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'm really excited to talk about this because, like I said, I think this is something that pops up a lot, but people are scared to maybe talk about it or ask questions about it. So we're going to kind of dive into it. And I I kind of want to start with just the basics of really kind of explaining what an eating disorder is and how that differs from disordered eating. Yeah. So an eating disorder is something that uh, actually has associated criteria with it. And uh, the criteria is according to the DSM-5 manual, which is a manual put out by the American Psychiatric Association. And, and, you know, each eating disorder has a very specific set of criteria. um, And uh, psychologists will, you know, evaluate someone for that. But, you know, uh, not everybody fits into this neat and tidy diagnostic box. And um, in fact, I, you know, eating disorders span this spectrum. um, And that's really where disordered eating falls. And I would say far and away, most people in my practice, you know, have disordered eating or some kind of is eating disorder where, you know, it's rarely the case where it's like full-blown anorexia or full-blown bulimia. I mean, of course, you know, seeing eating disorders, I have lots of patients with anorexia and bulimia, but I think if, you know, um, people should just be aware that there are these um, signs of disordered eating and eating disorders and, and things like that, that can get in their way. Um, might be something like exercising compulsively or weighing and measuring food or even just the act of feeling stressed and anxious in the presence of certain foods or food categories. Um, The people who are binging, and and there's actually a specific definition of what a binge is, um, which is eating large amounts of food at one time in a um, discrete period, um, and, and also the sensation of feeling out of control. Um, you know, someone who's avoiding food or social situations or feeling obsessed with uh, health and eating clean, but being obsessed with health and eating clean, like isn't something that's in the DSM-5 criteria, for example. Um, and someone might throw up, um, but, or they might binge, but they may, might not do them with the frequency that's specified in the DSM-5 uh, criteria, for example. Um, and so, but disordered eating is so, so common. And I, I also just want to say that like dieting uh, can actually look and feel like disordered eating. You know, dieting often encompasses things like counting calories or weighing and measuring food or obsessing about weight. And, and a lot of times that, you know, really can feel quite disordered as well. So there's such a broad spectrum. And for anyone who's listening, I'm sure some people are thinking, I may have done that. I may do that. How, how do you, how do people end up 
being diagnosed with disordered eating or an eating disorder, do you find that people are recognizing it in themselves or that someone else comes to them? I'm sure, I'm sure it depends on the person, but do you see kind of like a trend there? Well, I think typically when these things begin to interfere in their functioning and their life and their ability to, um, you know, think clearly or perform at their sport, um, sometimes a coach will bench an athlete and they'll be pretty surprised about, you know, what's going on. And uh, somehow they'll they'll get referred to a medical doctor or they'll um, sort of go down this path. Perhaps a medical doctor might uh, determine that there's a really low and surprising or concerning heart rate. Um, and the heart rate will be abnormal or there'll be um, unstable vital signs um, such that there is orthostasis, which is a large change from laying to standing in heart rate and also pulse, uh, uh, sorry, heart rate and also blood pressure. Um, and so you'll see these unstable vital signs and the doctor will say, well, geez, you know, this isn't common um, even for an athlete uh, who typically might have a low heart rate. This is uh, what we call a sick heart, different than an athlete's heart. Um, I think you should see a dietitian and get an assessment to understand what's going on with your energy balance. And so that may start the path on, um, you know, looking deeper at perhaps someone's diet. But, um, you know, there could be something like a relative energy deficiency in sport, which is also really common and not necessarily a full-blown eating disorder. And that might just be that there's um, an energy deficiency. Somebody's training really hard and not able to keep up with the training demands, or um, maybe they it is intentional. They're dieting and they've cut back on their intake uh, for one reason or another, and they've landed down a path of an imbalance, which has caused a lot of negative um, problems uh, associated with uh, physical symptoms, such as losing periods or having low testosterone or feeling dizzy or GI complaints, immune function suppression. Um, and so we see these things, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's an eating disorder. And so there is a difference there because often when it's relative energy deficiency in sport, you know, when you get that education, um, an athlete's able to be like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know that that was a problem. I can, I can fix that. And, Relative energy deficiency in sport is really problematic for one's performance. We'll see, um, you know, reduction in endurance capacity, uh, decreased muscle strength, um, inability to make performance gains and um, increased likelihood of injury as well. And so, um, so there's an advantage to wanting to correct that imbalance. Um, but in terms of actually making the diagnosis or why somebody gets an eating disorder versus other people, like it, it can often be this perfect storm for somebody. Um, there tends to be these individual traits that, you know, somebody has like personality characteristics, like maybe someone with obsessive uh, personality traits or perfectionistic traits, which can sound like many of our athletes, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe there's depression or anxiety or you know, a history of uh, trauma or abuse or bullying, um, combined maybe with family experiences, uh, you know, moving around a lot or divorce or death in the family, uh, combined with cultural effects, uh, your whole team is dieting or all your friends are dieting or what your friends are doing, what you're seeing. Um, and we know that dieting is the biggest predictor 
of eating disorders. And, you know, we also know that around sports, there's a lot of pressure to be thin and to be at a certain, a certain weight, you know, plus uh, we also know that the pandemic has caused a, a huge explosion in the rise of eating disorders for people, the abrupt change in life, stress, trauma, sickness, um, struggles with food, exercise, body, isolation, team sports were canceled, so on and so forth. As a quick aside, I did a um, interview last season with a dietitian who worked with NFL players. He worked with the Giants and he was telling me how they have to do these weigh-ins and if they go over a certain weight, they get fined, which I was just like, oh my God, that just sounds like a recipe for disordered eating, but I guess they're just so used to it. But I, I think there is, like you said, there's there's this perfectionism among athletes because they'll do whatever they have to do to perform at their best. So I'm assuming you probably just see this manifest as their eating habits. Well, I worked in the NFL for uh, a long time, seven years with the New York Jets, and um, I remember those days quite well. And not only were there, um, were there, were, was there those weigh-ins, but there also was financial incentives as well for these players to be a certain weight, huge lucrative contracts tied to them being a certain weight. And at that level, just to add a little color to the giant story, there's also huge media attention associated with these players being at a certain weight as well. And so you could imagine the desperation of these players trying to be at these uh, at these weights, which I just want to distinguish doesn't mean that they get eating disorders because mm -hmm. they're doing this, but there can be panic associated, which leads them down uh, a path, perhaps in some cases of really unhealthy ways of creating nourishing and sustainable nutritional habits. Right. I'm sure there's some of them that figure out exactly what works for them and they have a nourishing diet and they're fine. But then I'm sure there's some that it doesn't necessarily work, which kind of leads me into my next question of, are there particular sports that you see more disordered eating or eating disorders? Yeah, I, it, you know, so typically and historically weight focused sports um, have historically been most at risk. And those um, have been uh, gymnastics, figure skating, dancers, wrestlers, and I'll add, you know, rowing, which in my practice has been, has just escalated over the years. I think the sport has also attracted, just has just gotten more popular. Um, but I will say all sports are at risk because what you'll find is that weight is often emphasized as a means of enhancing performance. And when that is the case, you are going to see that athletes are at risk. And there's a high prevalence of eating disorders among athletes in general, which is why I was so glad to see that you were interested in having this conversation, um, in particular for your podcast, um, just because I'm glad to have this conversation and spread awareness um, among among athletes. I mean, I have baseball players and basketball players, um, you know, just, uh, just all kinds of sports, water polo, swimmers, uh, just you name it, uh, equestrians. I mean, equestrians, another one, there's a lot of emphasis on um, how how you look and um, physique. And so any sport where there's pressure to be a certain way can really lead to these unhealthy behaviors. Um, and, and that also gets the attention of like, coaches and the strength coaches and what what everybody's kind of saying. Um, and that really puts uh, puts pressure and can lead to disordered eating and um, trouble with self-esteem and um, which can then affect food intake. 
If you want to get the latest cutting-edge information in the field of sports medicine, check out my new show, The Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. I'm Mike Reynolds. Each week I feature a new interview with some of the leading and emerging experts in our field so they can share their recent research, clinical experience, and best career advice. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I want to touch on a thing you said, which was that people tend to think that if they're lighter, they perform better. I'm assuming we, I mean, I know that's not true. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Why do why do you think that is? Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's a lot that is made up about, you know, weight and performance. And I love one of my colleagues, Riley Nichols, who um, is at the mind body, um, who runs mind body endurance. Um, He often speaks about weight being just one of 40 factors that affects performance. And there are so many, you know, other factors when we think about it that, uh, affect sports performance, sleep and mental toughness and concentration and confidence, reaction time, coordination, commitment, um, a person's coachability, right? So, and I could literally keep going. I haven't even mentioned nutrition, right? Like hydration and, you know, if you're adhering to the, you know, eating regularly. And like, if you had breakfast that day and um, so I, you know, there's just so much emphasis on that. And what about, you know, emphasizing and building up the other areas um, of those other other things. And, you know, um, and so it's just that when people begin to kind of think about these weights that squeezing into a weight that might not be right for them, you, you end up, you know, perhaps compromising performance because you're slower or your muscle mass has reduced um, or you're, you know, compromising recovery, which um, can be problematic. And you also mentioned there are some coaches sometimes that put pressure on these athletes to to look a certain way or to be a certain size. How can someone in the in the coaching position or in the dietitian position work with these athletes, knowing that unfortunately we may not be able to change the whole perception of the dancing industry or the wrestling industry, but we still want these people to be healthy. Yeah, well, I think it's important to focus on performance and not weight. And I, you know, I just listed a whole bunch of areas of performance um, that can really be impactful for athletes. And coaches should also be aware of warning signs associated with eating disorders. They should be aware of language used. And I, I don't think they often know that some of the jokes and some of the teasing um, is really problematic. Um, some of the pressure um, is, is not helpful. Um, the overemphasis on specifically and only weight can be problematic. Um, and, and that we really want to make sure that people are at, uh, and, and aspiring to places for their body that are right for their own unique, uh, genetic makeup. For sure. And I also think we're talking obviously about competitive athletes, but I mean, I, I work with a lot of runners and I know within the running population, just any, anyone who's recreational, there's a certain type of quote unquote runner's body that some people strive to have. That's not necessarily going to make you the fastest you're ever going to be. I know that there's a tendency for some people to want to cut weight before a race, but that's not, like I said, going to make you as fast as you want to be. So are there any differences in eating disorders between males and females? Uh, do you see more prevalence among one population? So, you know, the 
rise, there has been a rise in eating disorders among males that we are seeing. It is escalating uh, at a really fast rate, faster than it's uh, occurring among women. Um, and a lot of this is because there's delays in recognition um, in the male population. Many males feel embarrassed or they feel uh, ashamed, um, you know, about maybe uh, thinking it's a teen girl's problem, you know, so to speak, uh, or maybe uh, they've been sent away by doctor's offices. I can't tell you how many patients in my practice, um, you know, the, the doctor missed it or didn't know that there was a problem or, um, and so that, that's, that's really unfortunately very common. Uh, one of the studies that I talk about a lot was done right here um, with my colleagues out of Stanford that uh, Dr. Vo and colleagues that showed that when um, males were finally seen by providers, um, they 50% of them actually met criteria for medical hospitalization. Oh so, gosh. You know, they when they finally do show up, the delays in care uh, have have uh, really prevented them uh, from getting uh, the care that they needed, and the eating disorder has gotten so serious that they were in really bad shape. Um, we also know that transgender youth are four times more likely to have eating disorders um, than cisgender uh, folks, and you know this is because they're trying to reduce secondary uh, sex characteristics suppressing breast development or hair growth or, you know, things like that. So, um, so we are, are definitely seeing that. And, and I will say that, you know, for, for males, um, it does show up, you know, a, a little differently in that there is more of an attention of, um, you know, a pursuit of muscularity, uh, what we're seeing kind of an emphasis on protein use, like an interest in getting taller supplement use, uh, and more of a focus on weight gain. Um, and, you know, this desire for muscularity often comes with an interest in reducing body fat composition, which also comes with this, you know, idea of wanting leanness and muscularity. And like that whole picture is just very different than what we're seeing in women. And are there certain things that happen long term for I know for women, there is a change in hormones. So we talk a lot about loss of period and things like that. Does the same thing happen with men? Yeah, we're seeing um, a reduction in, in bone, you know, bone density as well. And so, you know, very similar to women who have a reduction in bone density. Uh, there's the suppression in testosterone that then creates that same reduction in bone density, increase of uh, stress fractures, um, you know, in a very similar way. I wanted to ask you about stress fractures. So I've seen some people talking about and this is just kind of chatter on the internet. I, I'm plant-based <laughs> and some people will say being plant-based could be described as disordered eating because you're you're cutting out food groups. It, what do you think about that? Is that something, because I also see a higher prevalence of stress fractures with some people who are vegan. So they may be deficient in nutrients and that type of thing. Is Do you consider plant-based to be, I, I mean, I don't know if you'd classify it as disordered eating, but do you? So it depends on the intention, um, just like anything. And so in our line of work, um, sometimes when an eating disorder develops, um, it's because there's a desire to change weight, change body. And we tend to see people cutting things out from their diet. 
Um, I'm going to become gluten-free. I'm going to stop eating this. I'm going to be keto. And then all of a sudden they slap on vegan or vegetarian. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and so we'll ask, you know, why are you vegan? Um, sometimes they'll answer quite honestly. Well, I thought it might help me lose weight. Right. And that sounds like a very eating disorder answer. Um, it doesn't sound genuine to the causes that many people decide to become vegan. Um, I care about animals. I care about the environment. I want to, you know, help the footprint of, you know, wh whatever the reason that, you know, I love animals, whatever the reasons might be. Um, other people will say my whole family is vegan. I've been a vegan for since I was born and then they get an eating disorder. Um, or other people will say I've been a vegan since I was 13. And then the eating disorder develops when they were 17. And you can tell there's a difference there um, when the eating disorder develops versus when the vegan vegetarianism develops and the reasons why, um, what's what there. Um, and the, it really comes down to, for me as a clinician working with someone, um, what's the reason, what's the motivation, what's what? Um, and then it also comes down to, um, you know, uh, what kind of vegan vegetarian are they? And are they able to, uh, if they are going to stay vegan vegetarian, like, can they be uh, working on expanding their variety, including all food groups, and really helping to re-nourish their body in this very malnourished state? Um, you know, and, and uh, it's not like any other, it's not unlike any other thing where we're just trying to refeed their body and, and get them, you know, back to health. Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a good segue into talking about the recovery from this. So obviously, we've kind of talked about eating disorders and disordered eating are, are different. But can you talk about the recovery from both of those? What would you do if you think if an athlete thinks they have an eating disorder, they're probably going to talk to their clinician about it or their coach or someone, maybe they are diagnosed with these things. What does the recovery look like? Yeah, well, first of all, you want to really make sure you're recognizing signs and symptoms. Um, I just want to, you know, emphasize for the people listening, you know, eating disorders really can affect anyone, any gender, age, shape, size. Um, you certainly don't need to be emaciated to have an eating disorder. You know, eating disorders affect all ethnicities. Uh, they're they're actually increasing increasing uh, quite rapidly among marginalized populations as well. So I think knowing this is helpful and recognizing warning signs um, that you know um, if you're having a difficult relationship with food, if you're binging, restricting, you know dizziness is not normal. <laughs> so if you're standing up and you're feeling dizzy, um, that's a problem. Um, and so if these things are happening, yes, see a health professional who specializes in eating disorders, um, you know, and, and make sure that they, they know what's going on. If you see someone where it's not their specialty and they're like, oh no, you're good. You know, you're fine. You know, and in your gut, you know, you're not fine. That's that provider probably doesn't know eating disorders or doesn't know what's going on. So it's really important. You find somebody who is an expert um, who understands the, you know, the pathology and understands the clinical picture of, of really what's, what's going on. Um, and then in terms of recovery, typically it's really a multidisciplinary approach. Um, typically our patients are seen by a medical provider, a registered dietitian, um, as well as a therapist. And there's this integrated team approach um, to help re-nourish somebody back to health. And 
you have uh, something that kind of helps called the, the plate by plate approach. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so my colleague Casey Crosby and I developed um, the plate by plate approach and we wrote about it in our book called How to Nourish Your Child Through an Eating Disorder. And we're actually writing the same. We're writing uh, about this book now for adults and for clients. We're a third of the way through and that should be out next year. We're really excited about that. Awesome. Um, yeah. So this approach is um, basically uh, a visual approach um, that helps to re-nourish patients because counting calories and tracking apps are really not recommended. Um, there, there really are an increasing number of studies um, that, that shows that there's um, these things increase psychological distress and um, eating disorder um, symptomatology. Um, and so we, you know, we kind of looked around at kind of what was in treatment centers and what was around and, and really found that we had kind of had issues with, with all these other things. Like, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the exchange system that like that's used in these programs, but, um, commonly in eating disorder facilities, there's the exchange system, which is actually based on the diabetes exchange system. And it's kind of like, getting a certain number of um, milks, breads, meats, et cetera, like kind of like a Weight Watchers thing, so to speak. Um, right, and yeah. pa patients like it because you can be like, okay, a brownie is like, you know, two breads, two, two fats. Um, but it, it kind of leaves patients with these like remnants of numbers and food categories, and they always get manipulated. Like, people are always like undercutting, you know, the, the amount of food that they really need. And then like when they transition to, to normal eating, which like they're never supposed to stay on exchanges forever, then people are still kind of looking at the plate that way as like three meats and three breads and two vegetables. And like, so it, we were, um, you know, this uh, plate by plate approach, um, which we have an Instagram with lots and lots of photos um, to kind of help athletes and non-athletes and our patients um, just visualize a plate and fill up the plate um, with half the plate coming from starch, 25% of the plate coming from protein, 25% of the plate coming from fruits or veg with fats um, and some kind of dairy or dairy alternative. Um, and the plate can really be used um, with all cultures, with those who are lactose intolerant or those who are celiac or those who are vegan or vegetarian. Um, and so the focus really is on balance, what looks normal, what feels normal, normal in quotes, because I, I don't know, you know, whatever is normal to, to, to you. Um, and um, yeah, and so, you know, and, you know, nutrition rehabilitation is tough for those um, who are, require weight restoration, but of course not everybody in eating disorder, reco eating disorder recovery does require weight restoration, but the, there's a couple versions of this plate. Um, and nutritional needs will vary. Um, but, but yeah, that's the essence of what that is. So it sounds like that could help people kind of break this perfectionist cycle. If they're not diagnosed with a, an eating disorder, if it's a disordered eating, it can kind of help them break out of their boundaries. Either way. I mean, we use it with eating disorders. We use it with disordered eating. I actually use it with my athletes as well, with or without eating disorders. Um, you know, I, I've gone away from kind of obsessive counting and macros and numbers 
Um, because I found that like my, my athletes, even when I was at, you know, professional organizations, like they're not counting the grams, <laughs> you know, they're just, they're not doing that. And I didn't want to do that. Um, and so I just find like in my practice in general, I'm using this visual approach and helping to customize uh, by the person based on the plate, like which plate I'm using. The other plate is a one third, one third, one third plate. So one third starch, one third protein, one third vegetable. And then we can customize the amount of snacks, the size of snacks to kind of get further customization by, by each person. Um, but other than that, it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit more, more free. And so I was in a, um, a partial hospitalization program when we first started to roll this out. And one of the patients was like, how much salad dressing do I put on? And she had come from an exchange based program um, where the, the answer would have been a tablespoon, because that's mm -hmm. what an exchange was. And I looked at her and I said, I don't, you know, what, what looks good. And she's like, looked at me like I was crazy. Like, I mean, you're not going to give me a specific amount. Um, and so I, I just said to her, I, so she looked at me and she was like, okay, and she like put on the salad dressing, like a person would put on salad dressing on their salad. And this was in a partial hospitalization program where there's, you know, an eating disorder that requires an intense treatment setting. And she did great. And that was when I was like, okay, this approach, like I'm never looking back you know, this is what we need. Um, and so it does sort of teach that, like, we're not going to measure that salad dressing, we're going to put it on until it looks and feels normal, you know, uh, how salad dressing should feel. Those are pretty much all of the questions I have for you today. I'm really excited that you chatted about this. I think it's going to be super helpful for people. Where can they find you and your plate by plate approach and more info? So I have a website, sterlingnutrition.com. Um, so much of my information is there, including information about my books. Um, my Instagram is Wendy underscore Sterling. And then our plate by plate approach is at plate by plate approach. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo. And if you want to learn more from me, follow me on social media at Greenleats or visit my website at greenleats.com.